everyone. I'm Jensine Bard, and welcome to Testimony, where truth is told, lives are changed, and hope is given. Revelation 12:11 tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, a testimony of your story for His glory. Back with us today in the National Religious Broadcasters Convention special is nationally known speaker, historian, and best-selling author of over 20 books and DVDs chronicling America's rich heritage and the miracles that made them so. In his latest, Miracles in American History, Volume 2, The Faith That Shaped a Nation, William J. Federer once again gives us the real story. In concert with wife Susie Federer, ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome back to Testimony, always a joy, my good friend, William J. Federer. Bill, welcome back to Testimony. Jensen, great to be with you. Well, it's always great to have you, Bill. Before we begin, your recent American Minute during Black History Month, black entrepreneurs, men and women, was astounding. If the African American youth of our day were to know their real heritage, I doubt the race baiters of this world would have the power they do, since the real truth of their history is one of overcoming to become all God intended. Case in point, George W. Carver. Can you briefly elaborate and then let's get right into your latest great read, Miracles in American History, Volume 2. Well, George Washington Carver was born during the Civil War. We don't know the exact date. But he, his mother was kidnapped, and he never saw her again. His father died in a log hauling accident, and he was raised by a German white couple called the Carvers. And they did not have children, and he was sickly, so he stayed inside and learned the skills of cooking, sewing, weaving, mending, which later in life he was able to support himself with. When he was around 11 years old, he, uh, by, by the way, he tells how he became a Christian. He said, a little white boy that he was playing with said he was going to Sunday school the next day, and I said, what's that? He goes, well, they sang hymns and prayed. He goes, what's prayer? He said, I don't remember what the little boy told me. Just as soon as he left, I climbed into the loft of the barn and prayed as best I could. I don't remember what I said. I just remember I felt so good. I did it several times before I quit. But he talked about losing his pocket knife and praying, and he saw a picture in his mind of his pocket knife behind the water bucket in the barn. He goes to the bar and looks behind the water. There's his knife, right? And so he had this relationship with the Lord. He would have plants that he would find and replant in a little garden in the wood. He called them my pets. But when he's 11 years old, he leaves and goes into the town of Neosha, where mom is from. He lived in a loft of a barn, went around town raising money, doing odd jobs to raise money for his school. Can you imagine an 11-year-old kid wanting to, you know, clean your stable, to uh, raise money to pay for his going. He's taken in by a black couple, Aunt Mariah and Uncle Andy Watkins. They give him his first Bible and they begin to take him to a Baptist church. And Then he learns all that Schoolmaster Foster could teach him, find somebody going to Fort Scott, Kansas, and he goes there, lives in a lean-to behind the stagecoach depot, which is a board leaning up against a wall. And he stays on somebody's back porch. Um, he witnesses a lynching and flees. Uh, winds up in central Kansas and 
going to school. Another boy has George Carver as the name, and so he adds W to his name and adds Washington. So he does laundry, goes around town collecting people's clothes, does the laundry, and then he shows up in class, and then he homesteads in western Kansas, where, you know, you stay there a couple years, you get to own land, and uh, the people there love him. He plays accordion at their dances, and but then there's a, a famine, and so he goes to Kansas City, learns telegraph, Union Telegraph, he called himself a wanderer, winds up in Winterset, Iowa, and he's the head cook at a hotel, and in the evening he'd go to churches. Well, one day at the hotel, a man comes, invites him to dinner, to doctor, and said his wife heard him sing at church the night before. And so he went to the house and he, they had him sing some songs, and he said, from that time on, John and Helen Mulholland were my closest friends, and he would go there once a week and recite. And he goes, they always say, how could one person do so much? But his art teacher, uh, and he was really good at art, one of his paintings got an honorable mention at the Chicago World's Fair. But his art teacher had a father who taught at Iowa State College of Agriculture. She suggested he go into agriculture. He does. I tell the whole story that he gets his bachelor's degree, master's degree, goes on to become a uh, teacher at the college. And his professors go on to become U.S. secretaries of agriculture. I mean, he's rubbing shoulders with the top people. Then he gets a letter from Booker T. Washington down at Tuskegee, Alabama, asking him to give it all up. And he comes down there, and there is no agricultural department. He sends his students out to the farms to gather a bunch of broken pots and pans and bottles and turn them upside down and turn them into funnels and uh, and then he sees how the farmers are struggling because they grow cotton. Every year you grow cotton it produces less because it depletes the soil. Then a bull weevil bug came through and killed what was left. He teaches them how to plant peanuts it's because they had a root structure to put nitrogen into the soil and fertilizer is nothing but nitrogen. They do but now they have a harvest full of peanuts that nobody wants to buy because they use them for horse feed. They're called goobers. Nobody ate them. So he goes into his laboratory and comes up with hundreds of uses for the peanut. Everything from cosmetic cream to leather stain to asphalt, you know, to crayons, the non-toxic pigments that crayons are made out of. And he basically creates a market for the peanut. And so the farmers ask him to go to Washington, D.C., and lobby Congress for a tariff tax on imported peanuts to help the domestic grown ones. And he gets there and the congressman says, okay, you got 10 minutes to talk. Well, he starts pulling out of his bag all the stuff he makes out of peanuts. And the congressman said, your time's unlimited. He speaks for an hour and 45 minutes. Afterwards, the congressman said, Dr. Carver, how did you learn all these things? He said, an old book. He goes, what old book? He said, the Bible. He said, does the Bible tell about peanuts? He goes, no, sir, it tells about the God who made the peanut. I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. Amazing, amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to historian and best-selling author William J. Federer. Bill, in our remaining time, we're also focusing on your latest great read, Miracles in American History, Volume 2. What one story both surprised and impressed you the most and why? Well, we were talking black history. One is John Stewart in the early 1800s. He's a free black in Ohio. He's a clothes dyer, like you dye blue jeans blue. He saves up his money, going to another city. He gets robbed of his life savings. He is so depressed, he goes to the nearest town to drink himself to death. And he decides he's going to commit suicide, goes to the Ohio River, about to throw himself in. He hears someone call his name. There is no one around. He sort of feels a little bit, you know, strange, and so he leaves. And 
On his way back, he goes through the woods and he hears singing. It's a Methodist camp meeting revival. He goes there and he gets touched by the Lord. And then his drinking buddy says, hey, one more last night of binge drinking. He says, okay, well that day his drinking buddy dies. And so he's like, okay, not going to do that anymore. Goes back to this camp meeting revival, and he's there for about a month. And then the Lord impresses upon him to walk northwest. He just starts walking over the fields, through the woods, uh, wading across streams for a couple days. And he finally runs into the Wyandotte Indian tribe. They had never been evangelized. They're about to do an Indian dance. He starts singing in his deep bass voice, and the Indians get quiet. After a couple songs of Negro spirituals, um, the Indians, one Indian said, more. So he sings some more. <laughs> Finally finds somebody who can interpret. He ends up preaching the gospel. The whole tribe gets saved. Well, then the uh, Democrats push through the Indian Removal Act, forcing them all to go west. Andrew Jackson, the first Democrat president. The ones that didn't, it's the Trail of Tears, they were forced out. But the Wyandotte tribe left early, and they got an agent to buy land on the Missouri River and they go out there and they name it Wyandotte City. Later, they change the name to Kansas City. Kansas City, Missouri is still in Wyandotte County, this Christian Indian tribe that settled it that was all brought to faith by this black man, John Stewart, who had this tragedy of being robbed and then he got saved at a camp meeting revival. That is amazing and that's what I so love about what you do. You have a daily radio program called American Minute and you also have Faith in History, a weekly television broadcast. Bill, what words of encouragement and hope can you give the listeners surrounded by a generation void, literally void, of historical facts and instead filled with the, quote, feelings of the moment? Right. Well, one of the quotes I like is Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. The quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. It's really sad. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen, and we forgot who we are, how we got here. And so when I tell these stories, it's sort of like giving an Alzheimer patient their memory back. And they get this little flicker in their eyes. Well, that's who we are as Americans. Or So this book has lots of those stories. First Great Awakening, uh, you know, George Whitfield preaching a crowd to 20,000 people, Ben Franklin printing them. Second Great Awakening, um, Francis Asbury, circuit riding Methodist preacher. He ordains the first black preachers in America, Richard Allen and Harry Hoosier. And then you have Charles Finney, an attorney who gets saved. And he ends up inventing altar calls. He said, you serve the devil openly. I'm going to call for you to serve God openly. And he presents the gospel with the same conviction as a lawyer arguing before a jury, very convincingly. And his writings are printed and read over in Europe by a guy named George Williams, who starts the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. Another guy in Europe reads it. His name is William Booth and his wife Catherine, and they start the Salvation Army. And then you have a layman who went to Finney's church uh, named Jeremy Lamphier, and he's in New York. He puts a sign out, says, come and pray at lunchtime. Maybe one person comes. And then next week, a couple dozen. Next week, a couple hundred. Next week, thousands. And then it spreads to Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and it's layman's. There's nobody organizing it. It's just spontaneous layman. And literally thousands and thousands are praying every day at lunchtime. And one of the people that was caught up in this is D.L. Moody. 
He's a shoe salesman in Chicago and gets this understanding that, hey, anybody, he gets an old abandoned saloon and starts a Sunday school for poor inner city kids. It grows to 1,500 people. When Lincoln gets elected president, he's leaving Springfield on his way to D.C., goes through Chicago. He goes to D.L. Moody's Sunday school class. After the class, he says, Dr. Mr. Lincoln, do you have anything to tell the kids? He goes, yep, if you all do what that man tells you, you'll be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That is fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to William J. Federer, author, historian, speaker, and host of American Minute, daily radio, and weekly televised Faith in History National Broadcast. His latest, Miracles in American History, Volume 2, The Faith That Shaped a Nation. You can learn more about Mr. Federer's work, ministry, and mission by visiting AmericanMinute.com and get his book, Invite Him to Speak. You will be blessed and inspired that you did, Bill. It's always a pleasure bringing your voice to testimony where truth is told, lives are changed, and hope is given. You are doing exactly this and exceedingly more through your historical chronicling of your latest Miracles in American History, Volume 2, and powerfully so. We thank you. And God bless you. Well, God bless you, Jensen. And if anyone wants to, it's AmericanMinute.com. And appreciate you so much. You're tremendous. Thank you. Testimony is a global broadcast made possible by the generous contributions of our valued partners at Jensen Bard Ministries and you, our listening audience. Together, we are reaching souls for Christ one testimony at a time. If you would like information on how you can support this broadcast with your tax-deductible gift, please visit us at jensenebard.com. That's one word, J-E-N-S-I-N-E-B-A-R-D.com. And join the conversation at our Facebook page, Testimony with Jensene Bard. Thank you for listening, and please join us again for Testimony. Testimony.